Matthew chapter 21. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, so grateful uh, to worship with us. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read the story of, of Palm Sunday. And, and I want to give this illustration kind of before we do. Um, with three kids, as is a custom for many people throughout generations, is to parents to sit down and read a bedtime story with their kids, right? Well, my wife and I don't do this as much as we probably should, but we do it quite a bit. And, and our kids, all three of our kids have their favorites. Sam specifically, he brings books home from school that, are, that his teacher gives him that he picks out that are kind of right along with his reading level and he reads them. And he has this one book that he reads over and over called Birthdays. And he chooses it because I think he knows it best and it's easiest for him to read and he's really encouraged by reading it. But for me as the father, um, I get tired of reading the same books over and over again. Uh, we have said goodnight to the moon one too many times. And if you don't know that book, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kid's book. And, and they read these same stories. But one of the reasons I don't like reading the same story over and over is because it's kind of boring, right? We, we, I know the story. I know how it goes. And the familiarity of the story causes me to be bored by the story, causes me to lose value in the story, and causes me to be complacent in the message of the story. I give that illustration because rightfully so, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday next week and, and Holy Week, these are stories that we come to every single year. And this is a good thing. But we run the risk of being like parents who are like, this story again. I've heard it. Been growing up in church my entire life. I've heard the story of Palm Sunday. Jesus rides on a donkey. This is cool. I've heard this before. But I want to encourage us that familiarity, to not let it uh, cause complacency this evening, but instead let familiarity do what it's supposed to do from these stories and bring us into all in worship. So as we read this story, I want to encourage us. This, there's a reason why we celebrate Palm Sunday every single year. And let us not allow complacency to, or excuse me, familiarity to breed complacency, but let's read it with fresh eyes, if at all possible. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 16. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a fowl or foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up by saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and of the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. 
And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you not read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. What makes this passage and what makes the reality or the events of this passage and what makes Palm Sunday so special, and I'm just going to just make the truth clear and then I want to talk about it throughout this passage is the fact that the triumphant entry of Jesus is Him explicitly communicating that He is King. The triumphant entry is all about the kingship of Jesus. And kingship twofold. First, is this passage clearly shows us that Jesus is King of the Jews. He is of the Jewish nation and they are looking for their Messiah and they are looking for their King. And Jesus Every detail of this triumphant entry, the idea of him being on a donkey, the idea of the, the singing Hosanna, the idea of him going into the temple, and even all the Old Testament passages that he quotes is him clearly communicating that I am your king, talking to the Jewish nation. I am your king. But I want, I want us to see tonight is not only that truth, that He is King of the Jews, He is King of the Jewish nation, but the triumphant entry of Jesus in Palm Sunday is Him explicitly also communicating that He is King of all nations. He is not just King of the Jews, but He is King of all nations. And once I hopefully show you and defend that truth, then the application question for us is if he's king of the Jews and he's king of all nations, you and I represent all nations, therefore the question of application is simple. Is he king over your life? If he's king of all nations and he is on his throne, then that means he is king of your life. And the question is, is he king of your life? I want to read back through the passage and I want to show you how this passage clearly communicates that he is king of the Jews and king of all nations. Let's read again in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, the beast of burden. I want us to recognize that when a king enters a city, he does not enter on a donkey. When a king enters a city, a king enters on a war horse. And when a king enters a city, he enters on a war horse and he is surrounded by his army also beside him, around him, and behind him. Let's just take the Old Testament, for example. If you read through the Old Testament, we see stories throughout the Old Testament where a king is being issued in as king or where a king is stepping into his rightful place as king or where someone who desires to be king attempts to overthrow the current king and all of them are pictures of that king coming into Jerusalem, coming into a city with those that are on his side, with those who are saying that they're trying to help support him as king and they enter and it is and if you successfully make it into the city, if you successfully take over, it is your triumphant entry into your rightful place as king. But you don't do this coming in saying, hey, let's talk about this. Let me come in meek and mild. Let me come on a donkey. You don't go into battle on a donkey. So why is it so significant that he's on a donkey? 
The prophecy says this, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and the humility is defended by the fact that he is mounted on a donkey. This is huge for us because this is the beauty of the gospel and this simple idea that Jesus is king, but he chooses to come in on a donkey. He is king, that he is in his rightful place as king. Philippians 2 makes it clear that he was always king. He has always been king, and he is king. But in his desire to serve those in whom he is king of, his creation, he humbles himself. John chapter 1 tells us, Philippians 2 describes it, of how he humbles himself, he steps out of his glory, and he takes on human flesh. He clothes himself in humility. He comes, and days later after this passage, he would go and he would wash his disciples' feet to give a picture of his humility as king. When we look at Old Testament stories of a king who steps in and has a triumphant entry, this king comes in with force. This king comes in with power. This king comes in to usurp the current authority. He often will bring violence. He will often bring destruction. And Jesus does all of those things. But what he does differently is he doesn't bring them upon others, but he brings it upon himself. That the idea that Jesus is king as a humble servant, a humble king coming on a donkey, he is saying that I will not come and overthrow you per se. I will not come and bring destruction on you, but I will come in humility and service. And I, a few days later, which we celebrate on Good Friday, I will bring destruction upon myself for the salvation of those whom I am king of. King of the Jews. The reality that he is a Jewish leader, the reality that he is the Jewish king, then when he would be crucified, he would be crucified with the title above him as king of the Jews. He'd be crucified with a crown of thorns because it was clear that those who were crucifying him knew that he was claiming to be king of the Jews. This is him being explicit. He is walking or riding in on a donkey. He is entering in as the triumphant king of the Jews. But how do we see that he is king of all nations. This took place to fulfill, and he quotes a prophecy, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. He is quoting, Matthew here is quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. I want to read to you verses 9 and 10. It says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of the a foal of a donkey, and I will cut off. Listen, this is where it gets to the nations. Verse ten: I will cut off the chariot from the from Ephraim and a war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle of the bow will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The fact that he is riding in on a donkey, he's fulfilling a prophecy that clearly is talking about a king of all nations. He does not just ride in on a donkey to say, I am king of the Jews. He rides in on a donkey in humility to say, I am king of all nations. Jesus and his triumphant entry is good news for not just the Jewish people. It's good news for you and I, the nations. He is coming in as a humble servant to be king of you and I. Continuing on in verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're worshiping and they're exalting Jesus as king. Now, they do not have a proper understanding of Jesus' kingship. Right? They, they recognize Jesus to be a different king than what he would eventually be. They recognize him to be a king that would, uh, that would bring them out from up under Roman rule and that would ex- establish them as their own nation. Then eventually they would go on to quickly see that this is not the type of kingship that Jesus is doing here. And they would go on to crucify him just a few days later. But they are rightfully exalting him as king. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 10, and when they entered Jerusalem by the whole city, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? I love what Matthew does here, writing this. He's making it real clear at the center of the text, the question of the text, the identity of Jesus. Who is this? The original readers, Matthew writing primarily to a Jewish audience, writing to show that Jesus is, the, is actually the Messiah of the Old Testament. The fact that he is the Messiah of all nations. It's a question, who is this? And as we're reading this, we can't help but to ask ourselves the same question. Who is this? Is Jesus really what Matthew is trying to argue that he is here in this passage? And what Jesus is explicitly fulfilling by demonstrating these prophecies is he really king of the jews and is he really king of all nations love how matthew poses the question and the crowds said with a half truth right half right with this is the prophet jesus it's a half right because he is prophet but he's more than a prophet and that's the whole point of the text is he's not just a prophet but he's king this is the prophet jesus from nazareth of galilee verse 12 and jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Anytime a leader steps in to a new position or anytime you start a new job, if you will, there's always a honeymoon period, right? There's always where everything's nice and no problems. But Jesus cuts that honeymoon period real short. He comes in. They're exalting him as king, and he immediately comes in and starts rebuking them. Significant. I want you to skip that. And we could, and there are sermons, and maybe I eventually will, I'll preach on a sermon and specifically the reason why he did some of those things, but we're not going to dive into those details today. But I want to notice, I want you to notice what Matthew makes clear when he quotes, when Jesus specifically quotes, and Matthew records him saying, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 8. Let me read them. Let me read them to you in their entirety. It says this, and the foreigners, notice that. Already we're, we're talking about people other than the Jewish people. And the foreigners, Isaiah 56, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The fact that Jesus enters the temple and speaks with authority, he's communicating that, hey, I am king of the Jews. But the fact that he then goes and speaks with authority, quoting a passage that is focused on worship of all nations, he's stepping in and saying, I am also king of all nations. I am the Lord who has the authority over what is to happen in this room, which even goes further to say, not only am I in the sense a king of Jews and king of the nations, but I am king of this house. He's clearly beginning to explicitly communicate the reality that he is God. He steps in with authority and he speaks a passage that represents that the nations will gather in the presence of God and worship. And he's saying, that's because of me. I I am the authority who represents this. And so the fact that he makes this statement, he's making it clear that he is king of all nations. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Not only is this just a verse of narrative where Matthew's telling us what happened, it's also a very rich theological verse, and here's why. Because up until this point, Jesus could be clearly described as just a political king. He's just a political king. You could even argue he's a political king of all nations. But then he goes on and begins to heal, which he's now making it explicit, I'm king of the universe. See, I'm grateful for uh, political leadership. I'm grateful uh, that we have leadership who can come in and help us um, and in ways can help and, and bring about laws and different things to help those in need and can do all these things. But I want you to understand something. You and I worship a king who is not just a political king. Because I don't remember the last time I saw a political king walk up to someone and just heal their disease and just heal them from their, whatever they're dealing with and just cause all their problems to go the way because he could speak life and make it happen. You and I, and let me be clear, Paul is making it clear that you and I do not worship a political king only, but we worship a savior who is king of the universe, who has spoken all things into existence and affirms and holds all things simply by the word of his mouth. Matthew's making it clear. King of the Jews, King of all nations, King of all creation. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what they are saying? I want us to catch the gravity of this, because this is the clearest, and I believe the best part of this passage. Paul, one time um, in his missionary journeys, we read Acts that he was bit by a snake. It was a poisonous snake, and the, and the people saw that he was bit by a snake, the, the indigenous people there, and they said, oh, the fact that he was bit by a snake, then that he must have great sin, and God's bringing judgment on him, then he doesn't die. And they quickly changed their opinion. Not only is God not bringing judgment on you, but now since you didn't die, you must be God. And they began to exalt him as God. And Paul quickly, recognizing that they were exalting him as God, quickly stopped them from exalting him because he knew that there are stories in the Old Testament where kings and leaders took on praise that was deserved to God and God immediately killed them. And so Paul understood that his life existed not to take God's worship, but to bring God worship. And so the moment someone was exalting him as God, he quickly stopped it and pointed to God. 
This is precisely what's happened in this story. He heals and he's doing these things and children begin to exalt him as God. And the Pharisees see this and the leaders see this and they recognize this and they go, Jesus, do you hear what's going on? Because if you heard what was going on, you would stop it. Do you hear this? You must not hear it because if you heard it, you would stop them from worshiping you as God. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says this. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Why is that phrase important? He's quoting Psalms chapter 8. And I want to read Psalms chapter 8 to you. And it will make my point clear. Now, if you turn to Psalms chapter 8, I want you to understand something. You're going to see a little bit different than what I'm reading. Why? Because Jesus quotes the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, our English versions are in English that is translated from the Hebrew. So my point is, is an, it, when we are reading the translation now in English, which went from Hebrew to Greek to English, if you go straight to Psalms 8, it goes from Hebrew to English. The wording's a little different just because of translation, okay? So, that's, so recognize that. But it reads this, Psalms chapter 8, the part from the Septuagint, it says this, O Lord our God, or excuse me, O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is that? That's a statement of praise to God, yes? You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have prepared praise. Psalms 8 is a clear uh, psalm that is worshipped to God from infants and babies. Notice what's happening. The children in the room begin to sing Hosanna to the Son of David, worshiping God, and, or, excuse me, worshiping Jesus as God. The leaders see this and go, Jesus, do you see this? If you do, you need to stop it. And Jesus doesn't stop it, but in fact, he goes and quotes the very passage that fulfills the reality that him communicating he is God. This is why they would go on to crucify him. Have you ever had anybody ever tell you that Jesus never explicitly says that he is God? Well, then they need to read the Bible, because, or at least read the quotations from the Old Testament, because it makes it explicitly clear. Jesus is saying, yes. He answers, yes, not only do I hear them, but have you not read? And then he quotes a passage where children worship God, and he's affirming their actions. Therefore, he's affirming the fact that he is God. You and I, rightfully so, celebrate Palm Sunday because it is a picture of Jesus Entering in as a humble king. Entering in as a humble king who lays down his life for us. He is king of the Jews. He is king of all nations. He is king of the universe. He is king over all sinners. He is king over your life. He is king over my life. Scripture tells us that one day all nations and every knee will bow and will worship him as king. I want you to know something. You could disagree with everything I'm saying and you could disagree with what I'm about to say next, but Scripture makes it clear. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The question and the invitation of Jesus and the gospel is, will you bow on this side of eternity? Because on that side, you'll bow, but it'll be too late. Because we understand that Jesus is no longer on a donkey. I want us to get this. Jesus is no longer on a donkey. Revelation chapter 19 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, recognize horse, not donkey, a horse and white representing purity and holiness. The one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Picture of the crucifixion. And the name by which he is called is the word of God, John chapter 1. And the armies of heaven arrayed arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Remember the description I gave a minute ago of how a king enters a city on a horse and with his army? This is the picture of Jesus when he returns. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is no longer on a donkey. And the Jesus that you and I worship is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he promises to return. And he is coming this time on a horse. The question I have for you, is he King of your life? We celebrate Palm Sunday, and next week we'll celebrate what Christ did to earn our salvation, of how He uh, uh, loved us so much that He died for us, that how our sin was so great that He had to die, but He was also then, out of love, willing to die. We will celebrate His death on Good Friday and the resurrection on Sunday. We celebrate the life and the victory that is, but today is about His kingship. Him entering in as a humble king and his return one day as the triumphant king. Is he king of your life? The reality is, is something is king of your life. What you worship above all is the Lord of your life. It's not a question of, is there a king of your life? The question is, what is the king of your life? Let me read this quote to make my point. It's, it's a lengthy quote, but I'm going to read it in its entirety, so just... Just follow along with me. It makes it po- this point clear. It says this, Whatever controls us is really our God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is, acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Jesus' ownership of our lives is not a control that manipulates us or takes our dignity away. He governs our lives. By being who he is without compromise and by insisting we become all that we were meant to be. And this can only occur through following him, obeying him, and maintaining a living and passionate kingship to him. God created us for himself. If we live with any other center of our lives than Jesus, meaning if we, the center of our life, whatever is king or lord of our life, if it's anything other than Jesus, we will live incompletely. Is Jesus' desire to be the Lord of your life some little fetish of his? Why is it so important to him? Well, besides the fact that he deserves it because of who he is, he knows he is the only one in the universe who can control us, meaning that he can be the Lord of our lives without destroying us. No one will ever love you like Jesus. The last breath Jesus breathed on this planet was for you. Jesus will meet you wherever you are and he will help you. He is not intimidated by past failures, broken promises, or wounds. He will make sense out of, our, out of your brokenness. But he can only begin to be the Lord of your life today. Not next month, but now. What is the Lord of your life? Something is. 
And today's challenge and today's truth is that Jesus is king. Do you worship him as king? And if you worship something else as king and Lord of your life, is it worthy of that worship? See, the reality is because God created us for him and he has created us to worship him, that if we place anything else as the center of our lives, it cannot stand up to that pressure. It will always let us down. It will always fail us. It cannot fulfill that expectation of being king. If we make our family king, it will always fail us. If we make our job king, it eventually will pass away. Money for sure will come and go. Our culture will come and go. Safety will come and go. Things will come and go. If we trust those things as king, our lives cannot be fulfilled and will fall apart. But when Jesus is king of our lives, he is the only one who is worthy and can sustain that pressure of being king. Today is about celebrating the reality that Jesus is king. All of you were handed one of these when you came in in your bulletin. And it's called Palm Sunday, and it's the picture of that, this, picture, this reality that when Jesus was having his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, that they took palm branches and laid them down at his feet so that he could pass through them. It was an exaltation of Jesus to being king. All of you have one of these, and Andy did such a great job slaving with his fingers all week long folding these. I'm just kidding, Andy didn't do that. <laughs> Praise God, someone else did. We bought them this way. But here's the question, here's the challenge, is all of you have one of these. And the truth is, you lay this down in front of something. The picture of laying it down is a picture of exalting whatever you lay it down in front of as king. You lay it down in front of something. The question is, is it Jesus? All of us have a palm branch in our hand. All of us have a palm branch in our life, so to speak. And we all bend it towards something. Is our heart bent toward Jesus as king? Is our palm branch laid down in front of Jesus as king? It is the only thing that is worthy to take that. It's the only thing that is worthy for us to bend our lives to. So the closing question and the challenge is, is what do you worship with your life? What do you make to be the king of your life? And is it worthy to be the Lord of your life? As is our custom, the second Sunday of every month, we take the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is a constant reminder for us of what Jesus has done for us. It's a constant celebration of Good Friday. It's a constant celebration of Easter, of this Holy Week. That Jesus died on the Thursday night before He was crucified. On Friday, He gathered and had the Lord's Supper, or excuse me, specifically had the Passover meal, which would become known as the Lord's Supper to us Christians. He sat down and had the Jewish Passover meal where He took two of the many elements of the meal, one, the bread, and second, the cup of redemption. And he took a bread and he broke it and said, this is my body that is broken for you. And he took the cup of redemption and he said, this is my blood that is shed for you. And he says, every time you eat of these elements, do it in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. You and I have short-term memory and long-term memory loss when it comes to God's goodness in our life. We forget it. And so we eat constantly being reminded of what Christ has done for us. That on Palm Sunday, he triumphantly entered as king and he laid down his life so that we could have life in his kingship, so that we could have life in his kingdom, so that we could be subjects and this is where we belong to his king. 
He laid down His life for us. And we celebrate, we look back what He has done for us. How He died on the cross and how He was resurrected to life. And that as Scripture and as He tells us that if we call upon Him as Lord, we will be saved. That because of our sin, that we are under the wrath of God and He's coming back with wrath and judgment. And we don't like to think about that. We like to think that God's going to come back on a donkey again, but He ain't coming back on a donkey. And we've got to see the reality of His holiness and His wrath and His judgment. But first, praise God, He came on a donkey. He came in humility. And He bore the wrath that you and I deserve so you and I could have the forgiveness of sins. This is when we take the Lord's Supper we celebrate and worship that because He did that, you and I can eat in eternity with Him. We can eat in eternity in His kingship. We can celebrate Him as King. But we also, as believers, we take and eat looking forward to the reality that He is calling us home. We eat with hope. We eat in thanksgiving looking back for the forgiveness of sins and we eat in hope looking forward to the promise that He would call us home to the promise that one day there will be no more sin, to the promise that one day there will be no more sickness, there will be no more sorrows, there will be no more pain, there will be no more need to go to Guatemala or go across the street because there will be no more suffering. We look forward and we eat in hope because of that. And so at this time, I'm going to invite the deacons to come that are going to serve the elements to us, serve the communion meal to us, to come and just grab the crackers, if they would. And I'm going to pray over them, but as they're doing that, let me just do a couple more things. That this is a tradition that's been a part of the church for thousands of years, and it's a tradition that is prescribed in Scripture, but it's prescribed in Scripture specifically to believers. So if you're in the room tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, we just want to encourage you to allow the elements to pass, but also want to encourage you to recognize that that we eat and we celebrate what Christ has done for us. Eating this cracker and drinking this juice does not save us. But it's a reminder of who has saved us, and that's Jesus himself. So if you're not a believer, I just want to encourage you to allow it to pass. But for the rest who are baptized believers in the room, I want to encourage you that as they pass out this little cracker, that you would be in reflection. This reminds us and gives the opportunity to reflect and confess sin, that as the Holy Spirit reveals any sin to us, as He reveals it to you, would you confess it? And if He brings a sin to your mind and you're unwilling to confess it and repent of it, we just want to encourage you that Scripture tells us not to take of this irreverently. And if you're in a place where you just go, you know what, I'm, I'm still struggling with some things, then would you be bold enough and, and honor what Christ has done enough to allow the elements to pass also? But we, and I encourage you, that you just take this opportunity to reflect and allow just that opportunity for him to pour his love and grace upon you. I'm going to pray over the, the, the cracker representing the bread, and then they're going to pass it out, and then just hang on to it, and I'll come back, and we'll eat it together when we pray. Jesus, we thank you for your body that was shed for us, that was broken for us, and your blood that was shed for us. We thank you that your body was broken. Let's not fly past that word. we could have life. The beautiful picture that our lives are broken apart from you. Your life was whole. Ours was broken. But you laid your life down as a sacrifice so that it could be broken. So that we could be made whole. We thank you for that. So Father, as we eat, 
this cracker representing your broken body, would we be reminded that in you, that you take broken pieces, you make us whole, and you make us a masterpiece. And now we celebrate that we worship. So would you bless these elements and bless us as we eat them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.